0: Tonight's Earthwatch lecture is entitled Groundbreaking or Greenwash? Do Corporate NGO Partnerships Mean Business? We're very proud to have with us Julia Martin Levevre, Director General of IUCN, and Richard Aylard, Director of External Affairs and Environment at Thames Water.
1: We have been touched by the waves of public and private partnerships over the past decade. Some have been enthusiastic about the promise and prospects of such partnerships. Others have been disillusioned or against them from the outset as a matter of principle. The criticism of partnerships, justified or not, must not obscure the reality that the gravity and complexity of the environmental challenges we face dictate, in my opinion, collective action. We continually ask ourselves, as does every other member of the conservation community, as to why bother with business. The growing environmental movement, proliferation of environmental organizations and development aid for environment have not stemmed the loss of global biodiversity. Engaging the private sector may not turn the tide, but failing to bring this important part of society to the table to find solutions may prove to be a costly mistake. Why partnerships? Why can't we all achieve what is necessary by focusing on our traditional roles, government on policy and regulations, business on enterprise, and NGOs on advocacy? The the answer, in my opinion, lies in three parts. First, I really believe some problems cannot be solved alone. Solutions to others suffer from lack of legitimacy and trust. And in all cases, failing to collaborate represents missed synergy that the public goods such as biodiversity conservation both offer and depend on profoundly. Let me give you some examples from IUCN's experiences on working with business. In 2002, during the World Summit on Sustainable Development, IUCN and the International Council for Mining and Metals entered into a dialogue to explore solutions to the biodiversity conservation problems in the mining sector. A part of our membership believed the mining industry was incorrigible. Members of ICMM, with access to nearly 50% of the Earth's mineral resources, were the first in the business sector to publicly commit to the principle of no-go, meaning that there are places on Earth that must be protected from intrusive developments for their universal values. In recognition of this principle, they committed to not exploring for minerals in World Heritage Sites. IUCN is a partner with the World Heritage Convention on the natural World Heritage Sites. And they undertook to work with IUCN to objectively establish the basis for expanding this consideration to other protected areas. My next story is about Lake Natron in Tanzania. A proposal by Lake Natron Resources Limited, a joint venture between Tata Chemicals and the government of Tanzania, has been under consideration to develop this lake uh, for soda ash production. This would involve, among other things, construction of a processing facility along the lake shore, a network of pipes across the lake to collect the soda, and an access road, all potentially threatening the unique ecosystem of the lake and the lesser flamingo, a threatened species which mainly breeds and feeds on this lake. So the project had some IUCN members and other conservation organizations worried, and they together launched a campaign against it. IUCN then wrote both to the government of Tanzania, our member, and to the Tata Chemical Company, which is not a member, of course, reiterating these concerns and offering our neutral convening role and scientific expertise to assist with the evaluation of the problem and to offer potential solutions. As we were approached by the company for help, we sent the head of our flamingo specialist group to the Tata's headquarters in India for a presentation of the issue. This and the subsequent dialogue had, have already led the company to commit itself to totally reevaluate the proposal and its environmental imp- impact assessment, including the consideration of a number of changes to the original plans, including relocating the processing facility from the lakeshore to a site some 40 kilometers away, substituting the access road with a potential pipeline, limiting the extraction points, and uh, burying pipelines underwater to minimize interference with the birds' flight. Final decisions have yet to be made, and there can be many obstacles ahead, but it is already obvious that a constructive, science-based, sincere and open dialogue can potentially achieve results. The current drivers for business to engage in biodiversity conservation reputation risk, cost escalation, duty delays, and litigation indicate that, in fact, market forces are at play even in what appears to be entirely environmental issues. No market exists without regulation, and smart regulatory regimes can create virtuous feedback loops to environmental goods and services, such as wetland banks in the United States, for example. Anything that cannot be measured cannot be managed. The conservation community has been, at best, too slow to respond to the business needs of what is expected to be measured and reported in terms of biodiversity performance on business. And finally, business and biodiversity partnerships, especially between business and small environmental NGOs, are often partnerships between unequals The NGOs entering and staying in these partnerships do so under the burden that if their participation is resourced by the business partner, they have to defend themselves against the accusations of greenwash. What a pity that the development assistance community has been slow and erratic in its funding support for NGOs' participation in such partnerships. Mechanisms must be found to enable environmental groups to participate in partnership with business equally with full freedom and without the constant fear of the risk to their reputation. Can we, for example, start a movement to construct a framework of conservation partnerships that clearly sets out the rules for such engagement for both sides and is subscribed to by all parts of society? governments, the environmental community, and business to support partnerships for conservation in an efficient and in a sustainable manner. I leave this idea with you. Thank you very much.
0: Thank you very much, Julia. Our second speaker is um, Richard Aylard. Richard is um, External Affairs and Sustainability Director at at, um, Thames Water. I'm very honoured to have been invited to speak here tonight and especially to follow Julia. So, first of all, in my thinking, a partnership happens when two or more people or entities work together to pursue one or more common objectives. That's a pretty broad definition, but it actually rules out the sort of arrangements where each side wants to achieve something different. To my mind, that's a transaction. So, typically, a company will say to an NGO something along the lines of, uh, ''We'd like to give you X thousand pounds for a project of of your choice.'' And in return, we want to put your logo on our website and we'd like you to say some nice things about us, give us some recognition. So having ruled out one uh, whole swathe of so-called partnerships, uh, let's look at another situation, which is where a a group of companies engage with one or more NGOs to address a common issue. And to my mind, these are more accurately characterised as sector initiatives. Uh, They take an awful lot of effort to get going and keep going, but if they're done well, they can achieve a great deal. And these initiatives are usually undertaken by the leading companies uh, in a sector, um, often to, uh, to set common standards or to stave off the threat of, of additional and potentially perverse regulation. And these initiatives are also pretty popular with governments, because if you've got all the big companies in the sector lined up and a respected NGO supporting them, there isn't a lot left to argue about. So sector initiatives, good thing. But if we rule out commercial transactions based on marketing and put sector initiatives Honourably to one side, we're left with the classic partnerships, usually between one company and one NGO. I don't want to try and identify a a typical partnership, but I can see three different models, each with its own strengths and weaknesses. The first model is based on corporate philanthropy, and partnerships of this sort have been happening for years. These partnerships aren't difficult to set up, um, at least not compared to some I'm going to talk about later. They don't cause any harm, and they can easily lead on to much more meaningful partnerships. The principal weakness is that it's difficult to achieve any scale. And without scale, things really aren't going to change very much, and that's in a world where a great deal of change is needed. Um, Let me just explain, and here I really do speak from experience. If the, the budget for the first year is X pounds, let's say, and things go well with some positive PR and a warm glow all round, the average chief executive's view the appropriate budget for the following year is yes you've guessed it x pounds it isn't going to be 10x or 100x which is the problem you don't get the scale more significantly perhaps there's unlikely to have been any substantive change in the company's way of thinking or operating and any learning won't have been embedded so it won't be available to help the company in more difficult situations. there's also a danger that some people in the company may think they've ticked the environment box with their philanthropic support we really don't need to do anything else. The second type of partnership is based on efficiency, with a company teaming up with an NGO to find ways of carrying out some of its activities more effectively. More importantly, they can also be incremental with successive improvements over several years. You do one thing, it works, you do something else, you take a few more risks the next year as experience and confidence grow. But the weakness is that these partnerships only address one issue and they can potentially leave the most pressing issues around that business completely untouched. The third type of partnership is potentially the most difficult, because it requires all the key issues around a particular business to be addressed systematically with the help of the NGO. And this is a higher risk strategy for the company, because it may in the end find itself staring down the barrel of a decision that might completely undermine its business model. When these partnerships work, they hold out the prospect of really significant change, addressing the things that matter most. But there are some critical success factors we can identify, and these are things that in my experience can be found in all successful business NGO partnerships. And it won't surprise you to know that the first thing that I think about is a robust business case for the business, which will usually include some benefit to reputation and also some level of achievement for the NGO against its own core objectives, which of course may well include fundraising. The next really important factor is is rather easily underestimated, and that's people who trust each other and have a shared interest in the subject, albeit often from sharply contrasting perspectives. The third critical success factor is for each party to be really clear what they want to achieve and by when. The fourth factor is, is a willingness to do whatever's needed to make the partnership deliver and a genuine openness about different mindsets and and points of view. You don't know when you start what's going to happen with this partnership. So you have to be willing to be flexible, to adapt and draw on the skills of each party as as things happen. The cultural issue is, is really important too. There's often a very significant divide between the people who work in businesses and the people who work in NGOs. RMC was the largest quarry operator in Europe with more than 300 sites producing hundreds of millions of tons of sand and gravel. So they had big biodiversity challenges and opportunities. BirdLife was looking for international partners for their biodiversity work. As anybody who's ever worked for an international organisation will know, you can't mandate cooperation from the centre of an international company. It has to be built up locally. So they tried to work on different ways of getting people to to think and, and talk and work together. And after some discussion, they took money off the agenda, they decided that wasn't something they were going to talk about. What they wanted to do was use training as a vehicle for joint development. and The rationale was that it could be set up in a non-threatening way that would build links between the people at the various national and local coal faces and they would see what happened. And if money was going to change hands, the company needed to know that it would be spent at least as well by the NGO as it would by the company. So what they did was they focused on sharing three things. People management, project management, and money management, not, t- not the typical things you find in a business NGO partnership. And this took away the issue of threats because they had a common agenda to, t- to talk about that took people away from protecting birds and making concrete, but which could lead on to that in due course. So every time RMC ran their four-day management development programme, their 10 or 15 line managers were joined by four BirdLife International members. RMC paid for their places and subsidised the travel, but otherwise they simply came along as level-term participants with with the company. And what this led to was really strong local links. After a while, after several years, the amount of money that was in the MOU between the international bosses was £25,000, but partnerships worth £100,000 were taking place at the local level by people building strong partnerships without the centre trying to tell them what to do. One of the most celebrated partnerships, and the one I want to end with, Probably shows the best long-term evidence of what can happen through this this way of working. Concerns B and Q. Many of you will know the story, but let me just tell it from a partnership perspective. B and Q found itself uncomfortable being unable to answer questions about the sourcing of its of its timber. So they went ahead and they recruited what was then one of the first environmental managers in a UK retail business. And within weeks, he was seeing for himself the situation. Uh, on the ground in the forests and he was appalled by what he found and he was even more appalled by the attitude of the the, the suppliers who simply weren't interested in where the timber was coming from or or the standards. So um, he got back to the UK and set off to look for a partner. Friends of the Earth uh, showed him the door pretty quickly but he went to WWF and met up with the Forest Conservation Officer. The two had similar ideas they bonded quickly, they knew exactly what they wanted to achieve and they were both prepared to work uh, independently, let's say, of their chief executives and management structure to make this thing work, back to risks again. And they drew together a group of about 20 people who had similar aims uh, and and ambitions to discuss the possibility of a worldwide forest accreditation scheme. And this is 20 people sitting in a room in the UK saying, wouldn't it be nice if we could accredit all the world's forestry? I mean, it's a a breathtaking piece of of, uh, looking ahead. But it went pretty well. The, it was very clear the objectives were to provide B&Q and the other retailers with reassurance that they weren't causing uh, unsustainable forestry, and it was to contribute to WWF's forests biodiversity agenda. So nice clear objectives. And things went well with the chief executive of b q persuaded that he would commit to su- using only sustainably sourced timber in the foreseeable future. Now the rest of that story, many of you will know, the Forest, Stewards- forest Stewardship Council is is a pretty well-known body in NGO and business circles. But it's now certified the timber produced from 90 million hectares of forest in 70 countries. It's a quite staggering achievement, and it all started with a business-NGO partnership and two people who shared an idea and trusted each other. So I'm going to sum up. Partnerships are difficult. They're time-consuming, and they come with risks attached, real risks. They're not an exact science. They're not a panacea, a substitute for regulation, or a way of buying undeserved reputation. They need high-level support, consistency, and flexibility. And they consume resources, very significant resources for both partners. They're not for the faint-hearted, or the impatient, or people who think in straight lines. But they have huge potential to deliver direct and indirect benefits to the society in which we all live, work, and raise our children. For that reason alone, we should celebrate the partnerships that work and learn from the ones that don't quite make it. Thank you very much.